Are you ready? All right, open your Bibles to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 will be our text this morning. And though a wealthy city in its own right, Colossa didn't share the fame of other cities in the region of Asia Minor, places like Ephesus, Laodicea, or even Heropolis. However, they did have something that made them noteworthy, and that is they had a thriving church. And this thriving church, like any thriving church, was under attack from the one who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And we know that the enemy often uses the tactic, as he does today, of infiltration to try and get into the hearts and minds of believers. This has worked all the way back into the garden where he sowed seeds of doubt regarding what God had said to Eve, and she was deceived by the efforts of the enemy. And this church had come under attack, and therefore Paul had written them a letter filled with defense strategies against the infiltration efforts of the enemy. Now, this letter is among what's called the prison epistles and was written sometime between 60 and 62 AD. And the major theme of the letter to the church at Colossae is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, what was happening at the church, commentators are divided on, and what was creeping into the church, uh, most believed to be Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is kind of interesting, and it's with us today as well, because the Gnostics believe that all physical matter is evil and only the spirit is good. And therefore, anything done in the body, including the grossest of sins, is irrelevant because it's only the spirit that has life. Or life, actually, they believe only exists in the realm of the spirit. Now, that's a big problem for the deity of Jesus because he came in a human body. Amen. So therefore, the Gnosis decided this, that basically the uh, Christ spirit came upon him at his baptism and departed from him before his crucifixion. I'm sorry, but my Bible says when he arrived in the manger, he was God in human flesh. He didn't become God in human flesh. He already was upon his arrival. Now, the Gnostics claim to possess knowledge of higher truth, known to only a certain and select few. And this knowledge was not the biblical knowledge, but rather knowledge from direct revelation of some mystical higher plane of existence. And Gnostics saw themselves as a privileged class elevated above everybody else because of their higher, deeper knowledge of God. And boy, am I glad there's none of those people around today. <laughs> now, the problem is Gnosticism didn't arise really in full until the second century. Now, this gives cause to some to say what was actually happening here in Colossae was what was happening in Galatia and what was happening in other cities that Paul had written to or visited. And that is that the Judaizers were coming in trying to convince Gentiles that you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian and be circumcised. And those are the two majority opinions as to the reason or motivation of Paul to write to this church that he did not found, nor had he ever visited. But there's one more possibility that I think would be probably uh, more appropriate than either one of those. And I don't know if any of you remember in school taking a test, uh, multiple guess. <laughs> Anybody remember those? And there was always that bottom answer that we loved, all of the above or none of the above. And, and I have to say, I think all of the above would be the fitting choice for what motivated Paul to write this letter. Why I say that is because in chapter 2, he's going to deal with empty philosophy. And then he's going to deal with legalism. And then he's going to deal with carnality. 
And then he's going to deal with Christian character. And then he's going to deal with behavior inside the Christian home. And then he's going to deal with Christian graces. And in this letter, Paul was dealing, I believe, with the human tendency to want to accomplish things in order to be found worthy to be saved. But listen, nobody's worthy to be saved. God has examined all of humanity. His conclusion was there's none good, no, not one. All have sinned, and therefore all need a Savior. Now, what Paul seemed to have heavy on his heart in all four of the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, is that through faith we are in Christ. And this is interesting because he begins in Ephesians 2.13 by saying, but now in Christ Jesus you were once far off but have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says in the second prison epistle, 1.13 of Philippians, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are what? In Christ. Later in this same chapter of Colossians in 1.28, he'll say, Him we preach, speaking of Jesus, warning every man, teaching every man, in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ Jesus. And then in Philemon 1.6, he'll say the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. 30 times in the prison epistles, over 30, the phrase in Christ is used by Paul, which tells us this was constantly on Paul's mind as he awaited his time of trial before Caesar Nero. In other words, get this, in the darkest hour of Paul's life, the fact that he was in Christ was the most precious thing to him. And this brings us to our title this morning, which, if you can guess, is In Christ. Our title this morning is In Christ. Now, in prison, Paul remembered he was in Christ. When falsely accused, Paul remembered he was in Christ. When persecuted for the sake of the gospel, Paul had on his mind and embraced the fact that he was in Christ. And as usual in Paul's epistles, we're going to encounter some very Pauline practices, some rather lengthy sentences. If you remember, Paul holds the record for the most string of, uh, longest string of words in secular or sacred Greek writings without a period. 220 words Paul had in one sentence, and he's going to have some pretty hefty ones in our study here, including the introduction that we're going to look at here in a moment. Now, Paul is also going to follow the traditional Greek letter writing format, where he identifies the author of the letter, he identifies the recipients of the letter, and as in even secular Greek exchanges of writings, there would be a kind word or a blessing spoken over them, and in Christian writings, it would be a blessing or a prayer. And Paul is going to follow this pattern. Now, the interesting thing, I think, about what we're going to do is as I studied, and I, you know, every letter you go through with Paul, you find, and Peter has the same practice and others, uh, the, the typical introductory salutations and greetings and remembrances and, and all those other things. And I've, I started to study and I thought, well, maybe we'll just jump in at verse 9 where he gets into the meat of the letter. And then one of the commentators said something that sent me on a journey. And the commentator said, even Paul's introduction is rich in theology. So what I thought was, challenge accepted. Where is that theology? What are we going to find in the introduction? And we'll find some things here this morning, three in number as always, that are important for us to remember as people who are in Christ and people who go through hard times 
and are often afflicted for the sake of the gospel. So are you ready this morning? Stand and read with me, please. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Colossians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren who are in Colossum, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. And Lord, we pray that your Spirit would connect with our hearts and minds this morning and that we would hear what you're saying to us and calling us to in these uh, magnificent verses in front of us here today. And we thank you that we are safely in Christ as we stand before you and have been reconciled to you because of and through Christ. So, Lord, may we understand what this means to us on a practical and daily level from our time together today. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul begins his letter with not only his own introduction, an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he mentions our brother Timothy. And this tells us that Timothy likely held the pen when the Spirit inspired words for Paul to dictate to him as to what he wanted to say to the church at Colossae. Now, having identified the authors, he begins to address the recipients as he speaks a blessing over them of grace and peace. And then he identifies the source of grace immediately as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes to the reason we can have peace, which is because of the Prince of Peace, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the Lordship of Jesus being the central theme of this letter. Now, in Romans chapter 1, I want to read to you the introductory portion of that letter as well, and we'll make some points as we go of it or from it. Paul says, a bondservant. Now, catch that word, and we're going to talk about that in a few. A bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. That verse pretty much does away the Gnostic belief. By the resurrection from the dead, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because there's something I think that we need to address today. And we've talked about it in other times, and we'll talk about it in the future again. But I find it bizarre that there are those who uh, are, are critical of saying that as Christians, Jesus is our Lord. Uh, he's our Savior, and they somehow try and separate His Lordship uh, from the saving aspect of his ministry and relationship with us. And they've created and crafted the phrase called Lordship Salvation. 
and they say it's actually a heretical, uh, heretical teaching to be avoided, then their argument is basically that Jesus can be your Savior without being your Lord. And that, in essence, would require change in our lives for us to be saved and add to the grace of God that saves us. Now, it's actually what they believe that's heresy. And not that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Because a common name for this is easy believism. It's simply a cognitive acceptance regarding a set of facts concerning a personage of someone named Jesus Christ who lived in the first century that saves you and doesn't need to impact the way you live or how you think or all of what you believe. You're free under this to disagree with the Bible. Hello? You're free under this to believe portions and eliminate other portions and all these other things that easy believism teaches today. And we'll talk more about this again in a few moments. But the fact is, listen, when you are saved by the grace of God, not of works lest anyone should boast, Jesus becomes your Lord. And Peter would say in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Somebody say, Amen. Listen, Lord and Savior are inseparable components of the character and calling of Jesus Christ. God sent Him into the world to save us. And having saved us, he now sits as Lord over us. And the reason I wanted to pause in the introduction of Romans is because Paul uh, used a word that is translated as bondservant, which the word is never bondservant in the Greek. It's something that the translators have introduced. And listen, a bondservant was something that was a reality in uh, the massive amount of slavery that went on in the Roman Empire. And a bond slave was someone who may have began their service to a master because they owed them money. And once they worked off the money, they found their master to be someone very pleasant to work for. So they became a willing servant or they continued in servitude. That's what a bond servant is. But listen, the word translated as bond servant never means bond servant. It is the word doulos and it only means slave. And this is what Paul is saying. And Paul is saying, as he will later write, listen, I was paid for by the blood of Jesus. I was bought with a price, and he is my master, and I am his slave. And he is my Lord. And listen, that's not language that people want to hear today, that slave-master relationship. But listen, I've been the master of my own ship, and I wrecked it. I need somebody to direct my steps. I need somebody to light my path. I need somebody to order my day for me and tell me what he would have me to do that's best for his namesake and glory. I have no problem being a doulos of Jesus because he bought me and paid for me in full with his own blood. And the first thing I want to point out, uh, there's a pretty high probability since I'm standing that we're going to get fiery today. So buckle up, buttercup. Here it comes. Now, the first thing I want to point out is peppered through the whole of these eight verses. And this is what first caught my eye when I began to be searching for uh, through these eight verses for what the Lord would have us to deal with today. Paul first says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says, Timothy, my brother, our brother. 
Then he calls the church members of Colossae saints. He calls them faithful brethren. And then he moves on in the later verses to talk about Epaphras, the pastor of the church. He calls him a fellow servant and a faithful minister. Now, this brings us to our first takeaway from Colossians, and I want you to listen to it and take it down as stated, and then we'll talk about why that's important here in a moment. But listen, here's the first thing we need to recognize. In Christ, every Christian has an important calling. In Christ, every Christian has an important calling. Now, listen, I could get every head nodding up and down if I said every Christian has a divine calling. Because we do, right? Everybody knows that. But see, what we have the problem with is what's important and what's not important, even in the body of Christ. Because the fact is, we don't all have the same calling. And we need to recognize that the basic egalitarian thinking of this day, where everybody has to have the same thing, do the same thing, equal pay, all these other things that the world is demanding in our world today, that's not how the kingdom of God operates. God calls us, and God equips us, and we all have different assignments. But listen, what makes a calling important is not the task, but the one who assigned it. That's what makes the task important. And this is why Paul would tell the first predominantly Gentile church in the first century, the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12, 15 to 19, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, am I not of the body? Is it, or rather, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the, be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, if the whole body were one thing, an ear, an eye, or whatever, where would the body be is what Paul's saying. And then he adds this in Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. In other words, every part has a purpose in the function of the church body. According to the effective working by which every part does it share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Listen, I think the word important in our point is important. How's that for a profundity? I also think that we have to remember that what is important about our callings is the caller. And the caller makes the task important. And I say this because most people want to do something important for the Lord when the reality is doing anything for the Lord is important. Because it's the Lord who gives the assignments. And listen, I, I was thinking back this morning. It just kind of hit me in, um, in first service, and I shared it in Second World with you. Um, my personal pathway to ministry, to doing what I do now, began with something rather interesting that many people would view as menial or even janitorial, so to speak. And that was when God called me into the ministry, you know what the first thing he told me to do? Set up chairs. There was a high school ministry that was budding at the church we were a part of, and uh, they needed somebody to set up chairs. And I remember the first night there were 26 kids there. And next week there were 50. And then there were 75. And then... It kept growing and growing and growing, and I kept setting up chairs and setting up chairs, and others then came alongside to help. And then all of a sudden, we needed to set up 450 chairs, and they assigned it to the church staff. And uh, listen, this is what God told me to do. And I'll tell you one thing, I loved every minute of it. It was a privilege to get there early and set up chairs, because there were going to be teenagers sitting in those chairs who were going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and give their lives to Jesus Christ, 
And I had a part in that ministry because I set the chairs up. I wasn't the one standing behind the pulpit. I was the one setting up the chairs. But here's the thing. It took a while, and it was some years, but I started setting up chairs, and I wound up behind the pulpit. And that's the first time I ever taught a collective group of people. And then God began to open up other doors for me to teach. And the rest, as they say, is history. But what did, it start? did I start, you know, did uh, my pastor ask me to teach for him on a Sunday when he was gone? No, the Lord said, you know what? We need chairs in the fellowship hall to set up for teenagers. There's your job. And I did it. And it was awesome. And I look back and I share that with you because... I love that. I love that that's how God started. You know, when we got our first building, and just through the crazy circumstances that we wound up with in our, in our first building, we were there cleaning up. It used to be a church, and it wound up being used for a, a tape-duplicating uh, factory, basically for a, another ministry, and they ran pallet jacks all over the carpet. It was a mess. It was just uh, really a mess, but it was beautiful. <laughs> and we went in and started working, and there were a bunch of you know, we have a heart for skaters. We love skaters and always have because we've had skaters in our family and still do. And, uh, you know, there were some kids outside skateboarding. And uh, so we said, hey, come on in and, and have some pizza. Because uh, we were all eating pizza. So we brought these skaters in thought, oh, look at this. We got ministry already. <laughs> and you know what they did? They took every paper towel out of the paper towel dispenser, shoved it down the toilet and flushed it and left. And... Um, Thought, okay, now I understand what ministry is really all about. <laughs> but you know what? If we don't find a sense of fulfillment and purpose in what we're doing, then that becomes a pretty clear indicator that we're doing it for ourselves and not for the Lord. And that can and should change, but that doesn't necessarily mean the assignment will change, but we will change. And in Colossians 3, to 24, Paul says, bond servants, again, that's the word doulos, Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily when the boss is looking as to the Lord. No. Do it heartily as to who? The Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And listen, in Christ, every Christian has an important calling because the one who calls is the most important being in the whole universe. So if he asks something of us, it is important that we do it. And we'll talk about the fruit of that here in a few moments. Now, after Paul speaks this blessing of grace and peace over them, he then mentions the trifecta of Christianity, faith, hope, and love, though not in that order. And he says in verses 4 and 5, We heard of your faith in Christ and your love for the saints. Because of the hope of heaven you found in the truth of the gospel. I think many of us are well aware of an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet. He obviously penned the book of Jeremiah, as well as Lamentations. And think about this. Jeremiah wrote in 321 to 26 of Lamentations, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. In other words, he had an access to hope that was something he was aware of. Through the Lord's mercies were not consumed. Somebody say amen to that. Because his compassions fail not, they're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's what he called to mind. 
And then he said, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, listen, here's why I wanted to bring Jeremiah into this. Jeremiah wrote at a time where nobody wanted to hear the truth. Everybody rejected his message. He was extremely unpopular, much like the church is today. He wrote at a time where he said, ask for the old path where the good way is, and then you'll find rest for your souls. And the nation said, we're not walking in it. We want nothing to do with it. We're not interested in the old path. We got new things that we want to uh, seek after and do today. And then Jeremiah said, hey, consequences. Going to be consequences. Judgment's coming. 70 years of captivity. And you know what they said to them? Not going to happen. I don't believe you. Judgment is not. Is, is this sounding at all vaguely familiar? And this is what's going on today. And now we couple that with the fact that Paul is writing from prison with a heart filled with the idea that we are in Christ constantly circulating through his mind. And he's writing to a church that's under enemy fire through the infiltration efforts of the enemy. Yet Paul says, I've heard about your faith in Christ and the love you have for each other because you have the shared hope of heaven. And he says at the end of verse 6 that this same fruit, faith, hope, and love, as a result of the gospel is being reproduced all over the world. You know that's still true today? And therefore, our second consideration is this. Listen, church. In Christ, we all share a common mission. In Christ, we all share a common mission. Now, we could well say we all share the same commission because there's only one given by the Lord to the whole church, which is go to the world and preach the gospel. There's our commission. And we all share that. And listen, whether that's setting up chairs so people can hear the gospel or guiding people to a parking spot so they can park and go in and hear the gospel, the task is irrelevant because the end result is all the same. It's that people hear the truth and get saved. And this is why Paul would say in 4, 11 to 13 of Ephesians, and he himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now the last two have this assignment. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, pairing our two points together, we can see that whatever we do for God is important because whatever God calls and equips us to do is for the purpose of bringing forth fruit. And that fruit is the rescue of lost souls. Now, notice that the work of the pastor teacher is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And our collective ministry is bringing people to Jesus Christ that they might be saved. And this is what Paul said, I heard about you guys. I heard that's the reputation of this church. He's saying, in essence, I heard that what's supposed to be happening is happening. And Paul had heard of their faith, love, and hope that can only be found in the truth of the gospel. And this is the ministry of everyone who is in Christ. And Paul, again, writing to the uh, Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11, trying to sort through the practice of the gifts within the church setting, said this to them in 4 through 11 of 12, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministry, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the spirit, to another word of knowledge through the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same spirit, 
and to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, listen, distributing to each one individually as what? He wills. He wills. Can you go to a school and learn how to be a prophet? Can you go to a school of miracles and for a fee learn how to do miracles? God distributes those gifts as he, they're not for sale. They're not for sale and you can't go to class to learn them. God does the distribution of these things. And the differences of ministries Paul writes of are what we read about in Ephesians. And we can read that there are differences of ministerial duties, but they all serve the same Lord who gave the one commission to the one church. And that is to go to the world and preach the gospel. And because Paul is highlighting the lordship of Christ and combating enemy efforts to infiltrate a healthy church, that tells us we need to be doing the same thing today. We need to be standing against things that are efforts of the adversary to infiltrate the church and cause us to change course. And listen, every church in every age in every country should have the same reputation of being a place of faith, love, and hope because they preach the truth of the gospel. Because that's the only thing that can bring it about. Now listen, I'm going to come in close here. You ready for this? No church should have the reputation of being a feel-good church or a self-help church. No church should have the reputation of being a signs and wonders church. No, Here we go. No church should be known as a black church. No church should be known as a white church. Because there's no black and white in Jesus. There are no economic strata in the church. We're a bunch of slaves who got bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, listen, there's room for personal taste in the church. Somebody say amen. Some people like a loud tennis-shoed preacher. <laughs> Others like someone who sits on a stool and talks more warm and casually. Some people like the orchestra and a 250-voice choir. Other people like an awesome band like we have. And listen, there's room for those things in the church regarding method of preaching and musical style. But what there's no room for in any church is a different gospel. Because it's not a fruit-bearing church. And therefore, there's no peace. There's no grace. There's none of those things. And listen, in Ephesians 4, 1-6, Paul would say, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, uh, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And listen to what Paul says. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all y'all. Now, there's one Lord. He's the head of the one church. And the one church has one mission. Even with the diversities of ministries, the end goal is bringing forth the fruit of the gospel, which is people getting saved. Now, one last thing from our introductory message into Colossians. Paul mentions Epaphras. Now, some believe this is Epaphroditus. Epaphras is a, an abbreviated form. We met Epaphroditus in Philippians, who was sick almost unto death, and we remember the story there. But Epaphras is actually the founding pastor of the church in Colossae. Paul, as I said, never visited but he knew the pastor, and because he knew the pastor, he knew something about the church, because the pastor was talking about the church. And Paul describes him as a dear fellow servant. 
He describes him as a faithful minister of Christ who told Paul about what a loving church the church of Colossae was. And what made Epaphras a dear fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ is what Paul said of him at the end of verse 7, that they, the church, had heard and knew of the grace and truth of God because they learned it from Epaphras. In other words, he was rightly dividing the word of truth. Even though the New Testament hadn't been written, you can find Jesus in the Old. You can find the gospel in the Old. Amen? Now, I want to wrap up with something here for the next, uh, for a second hour. In John 1.14, John said this, and the Word, who's the Word? John 1.1 1, 1 tells us who the Word is. The Word was God. The Word is Jesus. Amen? And then John adds this in verse 14, and the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in 117 of the same book, John would then say, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then in his second epistle, a one-chapter letter to an elect lady, he introduces himself as the elder. He was the last of the apostles to be alive and to die. And then he writes to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also those who have known the truth because of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. John seemed to think it was important for the church to remember the pairing of grace and truth presented in the personage of Jesus Christ. He thought this is something the church needed to remember, apparently, and I believe that was at least in part because John sat for three and a half years under the greatest teacher who ever lived, I think John was well aware of what Isaiah said about grace in 26.10. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. So the prophet says, you know, you be gracious to the wicked. They're not going to learn anything about the righteousness of God or his righteousness requirements or any of those things. They're going to keep dealing unjustly. And in contrast, the truth has exactly the opposite effect. In John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the what? Truth. And the truth does what? Will make you free. And listen, our final point from our first message in Colossians is this. In Christ, we have received grace so that we can proclaim the truth. In Christ, we have received grace so that we can proclaim the truth. Now, listen, today, and I actually said this at a, a Calvary Chapel uh, Pastors and Leaders Conference, and I haven't gotten invited back. <laughs> but to hear some men preach today, you'd think that grace is the only doctrine in the Bible. Because that's all they ever talk about. And the truth is, yes, uh, the Bible says that we are saved by grace. But the Bible also says that grace does not teach the wicked anything about righteousness. That's what truth does. That's why Jesus was full of grace and truth. And in Romans 1.5, as we read earlier, through him, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. Remember, to be an apostle means you are sent. So Paul is saying to the Roman church, through him, we received grace and we got sent for obedience to the faith among all nations for 
his name. They were sent to do what? Carry out the one commission the church has, the great commission, which is to preach Christ. Now in Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may what? Impart grace to the hearers. Now, we're saved by grace through faith. Not of works, right? Nobody's good enough to be saved. We acknowledged that earlier. But listen, we've placed our faith in the truth and grace saves us because that is God's extension to us because he is a good and merciful God. And his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And grace means we're saved because God is gracious. But remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And listen, today it seems as though for many, proclaiming truth is ungracious when proclaiming truth is the most gracious thing we can do. Too many today think, you know what? If we change the moral standards of the Bible, more people are going to want to come to church. Well, listen, our job is not to get people to come to church. Our job is to get people to come to Jesus. That's what we're here to do. And we're not here to fill the sanctuary. We're here to empty hell. That's the purpose of the church. And listen, people today, I don't think even know what grace means. Because the fact is, we're told back all the way in Genesis chapter 6, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that Greek word, or Greek word, Hebrew word, which is ken, it's spelled C-H-E-N in English uh, characters, means to stoop to an inferior in kindness. And God said, you know what, I'm going to wipe this planet out. But Noah, I'm going to stoop down and lift you up above my wrath. So you, a man of righteousness, does not perish. Well, listen, this morning, I think what we don't hear often enough is what the Greek term in the New Testament, the only word translated into English as grace, is charis. And what charis means is not from where we get the unmerited favor definition. That comes from the Hebrew. Charis means divine inspiration in the heart and its reflection in the life. Charis means God moving in and you moving out. And Him starting to change you and transform you. Grace is not divine passivity towards sin. Grace is God at work in you. God changing you. God empowering you. Which is exactly how Paul described Epaphras. He said he knew the truth about the grace of God and that grace changes people's lives and does so after the truth makes them free. And Paul said, this guy is a faithful minister. This guy is someone who can be trusted. Now, listen, I think the church needs to quit telling the world about how much you can get away with and still be saved as a Christian and start telling the world about a holy and righteous God. Listen, my head's still spinning over a fact that I ran into through another pastor uh, a few months ago. I shared it with you one other time, but it needs to be restated this morning. You know how many times the Bible says God is love? Two. The Bible says God is love two times. Do you know how many times the Bible says God is holy? Hundred. Four hundred. The Bible says God is holy four hundred times. The Bible says God is love two times. 
What do you think the church needs to be talking about? God is holy. Seems to be an important focus of the inspirer of the Holy Scripture. And listen, instead of trying to make the church something more acceptable to the world, the church has a responsibility of telling the world how to become acceptable to God. And that's through being born again. And only truth can do that. So what do we do in times such as these? In 1 John 1, 9, first of all, let me say this. At the beginning, I think it's verse 3 of 1 John. John said, remember who heard Jesus teach for three and a half years, who saw him do miracles, raise the dead, all those other things. He said, this is the message that we heard from him and now tell you. In other words, John says, this is what Jesus taught. And then he went on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the key to this whole thing is one word, and it's the word confess. And the word means to see as or speak of as the same. And to just break that down for us so we can understand it, what John is saying is, is that if we agree with God's definitions of sin, then he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, you can't cut and paste the Bible and say, well, I'm in. You can't say, well, this used to be a sin, but it's not anymore because the Lord doesn't change. We don't let culture drive the morality bus. The Bible determines what is acceptable to God and what is unacceptable to God. And John the Beloved said, here's what Jesus taught. Jesus taught a morality code that has to be agreed with that defines you as a sinner. And when you come to that place of acceptance and agreement, then he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, you've all heard, I'm sure, of the Romans wrote, right? It's how you share the gospel with somebody. Very compact. Five verses, all obviously out of Romans, hence Romans Road. See what I did there? But listen, I want you to see if you can pick up on something that's absent from there. But yet, this is the way we lead people to Jesus. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. 10.13. For Whoever, whoever means whoever, wherever you are, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What was missing there? Grace. Say anything about grace there? Talked about sin, didn't it? Talked about damnation, didn't it? Talked about that... God loved us in a manner where His grace was manifested in the sending of His own Son to die for our sins. Did it not call us to confess with our mouth? To agree with what God says about His Son, who He is the Savior of the world in whom the Father is well pleased, who was raised from the dead, which implies that He died? Does it not say whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Listen, this is the gospel. 
And you know what? It was an act of God's grace to send his son into the world to die for our sins. And listen, we have received a measure of grace so we can proclaim the truth because it's truth people need to hear. I've liked to put it like this over the years. Grace is God's method. Repent is God's message. Grace is God's method. Repent is God's message. For in Christ, grace is what we experience when the truth has made us free. And listen, these are the lessons from the introduction of Paul's letter. Imagine what's going to happen when we get into the meat. Well, listen, I think we would do well to remember that we are experiencing much of what Jeremiah did. Think about when Paul Paul's writing this from prison for doing what? Preaching Jesus. And so here you've got all these examples of what to do during tough times when the world is rejecting what it is we have to say. And yet these people are staying the course and they're not wavering and they're not adapting to the world and they're not letting culture drive the bus. So what should we do? I'm thinking we do what they do, right? We keep preaching Christ. We keep telling the truth and speaking it in love. And we be filled with grace, but yet we always tell the truth. Because the most ungracious thing is to tell somebody something that's a lie and they believe it's going to get them into heaven. There's nothing more ungracious than that. In In order to be saved, you have to agree with God's definitions of sin. You cannot redefine like many are wanting to do today or the revisionists are wanting to unwrite or rewrite history. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, so are his moral standards. After all, listen, if the wages of sin is death, doesn't sin have to be defined? Would it be fair to change it from culture to culture, country to country? No, of course not. There has to be one universal standard by which morality is measured. We like to call it the Ten Commandments. It's actually the Decalogue. And the Lord talks about our uh, uh, lateral relationship and our vertical relationship in it. And it also is how sin is defined. We can't have no other gods before him. We should not take his name in vain. And listen, that doesn't mean that we use his name as a swear word. It means that you take his name and say you know him and live like hell. That's taking his name in vain. Listen, we do all the other things. We're not supposed to steal. We're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to bear false witness. We're not supposed to commit adultery. These are the reasons people go to hell if they don't have someone to mediate for them to the most holy being that there ever was and is who is too holy to look upon evil. So you know what the remedy is? Be in Christ. Be in Christ. And there's only one way to be in Christ, and that's to be born again. And listen, we're, we're running short on time, and I don't mean for this service. We got a whole minute left. But we are running short on time as a planet. You know, I we say it, and we've said it, I don't know how many times at this church, over our 20-some-odd years together, I just don't see how things can get any worse. Well, you know what? I just don't see how things can get any worse. I mean, everything is just wonky. Everything's upside down, backwards, wrong. Good is evil, evil is good. Uh, You know, women can be 
men. Men can be women. Men can have babies, which is, um, that that's stupid 2.0. I mean, that's next level stupid there. But yet, if you don't believe that, you're an enemy. You're a hater. You're a bigot. You're all these other things. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sticking with the book. In the beginning, God created a male and female. That's the end of the gender list. I'm sticking with that. And everything else between Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22, I believe, is the inspired, infallible, unchanging word of Almighty God. And I want to be a faithful minister, and I know you do too. Amen?